0: chapter 14 of a silent witness by r austin freeman this LibriVox recording is in the public domain recording by anna simon chapter 14 a lonely woman if i had had any intention of avoiding mrs samway that intention must inevitably have been frustrated for her recognition was as instantaneous as my own almost as i turned the corner she looked up and saw me and a few moments later she rose and advanced in my direction, so that, to an onlooker, it would have appeared as if we had met by appointment. There was obviously nothing for it, but to look as pleased as I could manage, at such short notice, which I did, shaking her hand with hypocritical warmth. "'And I suppose, Dr. Jardine,' said she, "'you are thinking what a very odd coincidence it is that we should happen to meet here.' Oh, i don't know that it is so very odd i live about here and understood you to say that you often come up to the heath at any rate our last meeting was a good deal more odd yes indeed but the truth is that this is not a coincidence at all i may as well confess that i came here deliberately with the intention of waylaying you this very frank statement took me aback considerably "'so much so that I could think of no appropriate remark "'beyond mumbling something to the effect that it was very flattering of her. "'I've been trying,' she continued, "'to get a few words with you for some time past, "'but although I have lurked in your line of march in the most shameless manner, "'I've always managed to miss you. "'I thought, from what you told me, "'that you passed Robinson's shop on your way to the hospital.' "'So I do,' I replied mendaciously, for I could hardly tell her that I had lately taken to shooting up by-streets with the express purpose of avoiding that particular stretch of pavement. "'It's rather curious that I never happened to meet you there. However, I didn't, so, to-day, I determined to take the bull by the horns and catch you here.' This last statement, like the former ones, gave me abundant matter for reflection. How the deuce had she managed to catch me here!' I suppose that she had seen Sylvia and me in the Hampstead Road, and had guessed that we were coming on to this neighborhood. That was a case of feminine intuition, which, like the bones had a skill, is a wonderful thing, when it comes off. And when it doesn't, one isn't expected to notice the fact. Then she had gone on ahead, still guessing at our final destination, and kept us in sight while keeping out of view herself. It was not so very easy to understand and not at all comfortable to think of, for there was a disagreeable suggestion that she had somehow ascertained Sylvia's place of abode beforehand, and yet, well, the whole affair was rather mysterious. "'You don't ask why it was that I wanted to waylay you,' she said at length, as I made no comment on her last statement. "'There is an old saying,' I replied, "'that one shouldn't look a gift horse in the mouth.' "'That is very diplomatic,' she retorted with a laugh. "'But I dare say your knowledge of women makes the question unnecessary.' "'My knowledge of women,' said I, "'might be put into a nutshell and still leave plenty of room for the nut "'and a good fat maggot besides.' "'Then I must beware of you. "'The man who professes to know nothing of women "'is the most deep and dangerous class of person. "'But there is one item of knowledge that you seem to have acquired.' "'You seem to know that women like to have pretty things said to them.' "'If you call that knowledge,' said I, "'you must apply the same name to the mere blind impulse "'that leads a spider to spin a nice symmetrical web.' She laughed softly and looked up at me with an expression of amused reflection. "'I'm thinking,' she said, "'what a very fine symmetrical web you would spin if you were a spider.' "'Possibly,' I replied.' but it looks as if the roll of blue bottle were the one that is being marked out for me oh not a blue bottle dr jardine it doesn't suit you at all if you must make a comparison why not say a goliath beetle and have something really dignified and not so very inappropriate well then a goliath beetle if you prefer it not that he would look very dignified kicking his heels in the elegant web of the superlatively elegant feminine spider. Oh, but that isn't pretty of you at all, Dr. Jardine. In fact, it is quite horrid, and unfair, too, because you are trying to get the information without asking a direct question. What question am I supposed to ask? You needn't ask any. I will take pity on your masculine pride and tell you why I have been lying in wait for you although I dare say you have guessed. The truth is, I am simply devoured by curiosity. Concerning what? Now, how can you ask? Just think. One day I meet you in the Hampstead Road, going about your ordinary business, apparently a fixture, at least for months. A few days later, a hundred miles from London, I feel myself suddenly seized from behind, I turn round, and there are you, with tragedy and adventure, written large all over you. I thought the tragedy was rather on your side, and so did the ancient mariner, with a black bottle and the teacup, but I don't wish to discuss the views of that well-meaning old brute. I want an explanation. I want to know how you came to be in Folkestone, and in that extraordinary condition. I'm sure something strange must have happened to you. Why, haven't I as much right to be in Folkestone as you have? That is mere evasion, when I see a man who is usually rather carefully and very neatly dressed, walking in the streets of a seaport town, without hat or a stick, and with a collar that looks as if it had been used to clean out a saucepan, and great stains on his clothes. I am justified in inferring that something unusual has happened to him. I didn't think you had noticed my negligee getup. up At the time I did not. I was very upset and agitated. I just had a lot of worry, and was compelled to cross to France at a moment's notice. And then there was that horrible horse, and the sudden way that you seized me, and then got knocked down, and the— The ancient mariner. Yes, the ancient mariner, and the knowledge that I was behaving like an idiot and couldn't help it though you were so nice and kind to me. So, you see, I was hardly conscious of what was happening at the time. But afterwards, when I had recovered my wits a little, I recalled the astonishing figure that you made, and I've been wondering ever since what had happened to you. I assure you, Dr. Jardine, you looked as if you might have swum to Folkestone.' "'Did I, by Jove?' I exclaimed with a laugh. "'Well, appearances weren't so very deceptive.' The fact is that I'd swum part of the way." She looked at me incredulously. "'Whatever do you mean?' she asked. "'I mean that you are now looking on a modern and strictly up-to-date edition of Simbad the Sailor.' That isn't very explanatory, but I suppose it isn't meant to be. It is just a preliminary stimulant to whet my appetite for marvels, and a most unnecessary one I can assure you, for I'm absolutely agape with curiosity.' do go on tell me exactly what had happened to you now the truth is that i had already said rather more than was strictly discreet and would gladly have drawn in my horns but i had evidently let myself in for some sort of plausible explanation and a lack of that enviable faculty that enables its possessor to tell a really convincing and workmanlike lie condemned me to a mere unimaginative adherence to the bold facts though I did make one slight and amateurish effort at prevarication. "'You want a detailed log of Simbad's voyages, do you?' said I. "'Then you shall have it. We will begin at the beginning. The port of departure was the embankment somewhere near Cleopatra's needle. I was leaning over the parapet, staring down at the water like a fool, when some practical joker came along, and, apparently thinking it would be rather funny to give me a fright, suddenly lifted me off my feet. But my joker's friend hadn't allowed for the top heaviness of a person of my height, and before you could say knife, I'd slipped from his hold and taken a most stylish header into the water. Fortunately for me, a barge happened at the moment to be towing past, and, when I'd managed to haul myself on board, I fell into the arms of a marine species of good Samaritan, who, not having a supply of the orthodox oil and wine, proceeded to fill me up with hot gin and water which is distinctly preferable for internal application then the samaritan aforesaid clothed me in gorgeous marine raiment and stowed me in a cupboard to sleep off the oil and wine which i did after some sixteen hours and then awoke to find our good ship on the broad bosom of the ocean and so not to weary you with the incidents of the voyage i came to folkestone where i found a beautiful lady endeavouring very unsuccessfully to hypnotize a runaway horse, and so to the adventure of the tarred nets and the ancient mariner with a black bottle. Mrs. Samway smiled a little consciously as I mentioned the last incidents, but the smile quickly faded and left a deeply thoughtful expression on her face. "'You take it all very calmly,' said she, "'but it seems to me to have been a rather terrible experience. You really had a very narrow escape from death.' "'Yes,' quite near enough. I am far from wanting any more from the same tap.' "'And I don't quite see why you assume that it was a mere clumsy joke that sent you into the river by accident.' "'Why, what else could it have been?' "'It looks more like a deliberate attempt to drown you. Perhaps you have some enemy who might want to make away with you.' "'I haven't. There isn't a soul in the world who owes me the slightest grudge.' That seems rather a bold thing to say, but I suppose you know. Still, I should think you ought to bear this strange affair in mind and be a little careful when you go out at night, to avoid the riverside, for instance. Have you... did you give any information to the police about this accident, as you call it? Good Lord, no! What would have been the use? I thought... You might have given them some description of the man who pushed you over. But I never saw him. I don't even know for certain that it was a man. It might have been a woman, for all that I can tell. Mrs. Samway looked up at me with that strangely penetrating expression that i had seen before in those singular, pale eyes of hers. "'You don't mean that,' she said. "'You don't really think that it could have been a woman?' "'I don't think very much about it, but as I never saw the person who did me the honour of hoisting me overboard, I'm clearly not in a position to depose as to the sex of that person. But if it was a woman, she must have been an uncommonly strong one.' Mrs. Samway continued to look at me questioningly. "'I thought you seemed to hint at a suspicion that it actually was a woman. You would surely be able to tell.' "'I suppose I should.' if there were time to think about the matter. But you see, before I was fairly aware that anyone had hold of me, I was sticking my head into the mud at the bottom of the river, which is a process that does not tend very much to clarify one's thoughts. No, I suppose not, she agreed. But it is a most mysterious and dreadful affair. I can't think how you can take it so calmly. You don't seem to be in the least concerned by the fact that you've been within a hair's breath... Of being murdered. What do your friends think about it? Well, you see, Mrs. Samway, I replied evasively, one doesn't talk much about incidents of this kind. It doesn't sound very credible, and one doesn't want to gain a reputation as a sort of modern Munchhausen. I shouldn't have told you but that you were already partly in the secret, and that you cross examined me in such a determined fashion. But, she exclaimed, do you mean to tell me that you've said nothing to anyone about this extraordinary adventure of yours? No, I don't say that. Of course I had to give some sort of explanation to my landlady for instance but I didn't tell her all that I've told you and I would rather, if you don't mind, that you didn't mention the affair to anyone. I should hate to be suspected of romancing. You shan't be through anything that I may say, she replied. I should hardly think that anyone who knew you would be likely to suspect you of inventing imaginary adventures." For some minutes after this we walked on without speaking, and from time to time I stole a glance at my companion, and once again I found myself impressed by something distinctive and unusual in her appearance. Her unquestionable beauty was not like that of most pretty women, localized and unequal having features of striking attractiveness set in an indifferent or even defective matrix. It was diffused and all-pervading, the product of sheer physical excellence. With most women, one feels that the more attractive wares are judiciously pushed to the front of the window, while a discreet reticence is maintained respecting the unpresentable residue. Not so with Mrs. Samway. Her small, shapely head, her symmetrical face, her fine, supple figure— and her easy movements, all spoke of a splendid physique. She was not merely a pretty woman, she was that infinitely rarer creature, a physically perfect human being, comely with the comeliness of faultless proportion, graceful with the grace of symmetry and strength. Suddenly she looked up at me, with just a hint of shyness and a little heightening of the colour in her cheek. Are you going to tell me again, Dr. Jardine, that a cat may look at a king. Or was it that a king may look at a cat? Whichever you please, I replied, we will put them on a footing of equality, excepting that the king might have the better claim if the cat happened to be an exceptionally good-looking cat. But I wasn't really staring at you this time, I was only giving you a sort of friendly look over. You weren't quite yourself, I think, when we met last. No, I certainly was not so we are now making an inspection. May I ask if I am to be informed of the diagnosis, as I think you call it? Now, to tell the truth, I had thought her looking rather haggard and worn and decidedly thinner, and when her sprightliness subsided in the intervals of our somewhat flippant talk, it had seemed to me that her face took on an expression that was wary and even sad, but it would hardly do to say as much. "'It is quite irregular,' I replied, the diagnosis is for the doctor, the patient is only concerned with the treatment. But I'll make an exception in your case, especially as my report is quite unsensational. I thought you looked as if you'd been doing rather too much, and not greatly enjoying the occupation. Am I right?' "'Yes, quite right. I've had a lot of worry and bother lately, and not enough rest and peace.' I hope all that is at an end now.' "'I don't know that it is,' she replied, wearily, or, for that matter, that it will ever be. Fate or destiny, or whatever we may call it, starts us upon a certain road, and along that road we must needs trudge, wherever it may lead.' I was rather startled at the sudden despondency of her tone apparently the road that Mrs. Samway trot was not strewn with roses. Still, I said, it is a long road that has no turning. It is, she agreed, bitterly, but many have to travel such a road, to find the turning at last barred by the churchyard gate. Oh, come, I protested, we don't talk of churchyards at your time of life. We think of the jolly wayside inns, and the buttercups and daisies, and the may blossom and the hedgerows Churchyard indeed. We will leave that to the old folk, and the village donkey, if you please. She smiled rather wanly. Her gaiety seemed to have deserted her for good. The wayside inns and the wayside flowers, said she, are your portion. At least I hope so. They are not for me. And after all, "'There are worse things to think of than a nice, quiet churchyard, with a village donkey browsing among the graves, as you say.' "'I quite agree with you. From the standpoint of the disinterested spectator not contemplating freehold investments, nothing can be more delightfully rustic and peaceful. It is the personal application that I object to.' Again she smiled, but very pensively, and for a while we walked on in silence. Presently she resumed. I used to think that the shortness of life was quite a tragedy. That was when I was young. But now... When you were young, I interrupted. Why, what are you now? I can tell you, Mrs. Samway, that there is many a girl of twenty who would be only too delighted to exchange personalities with you, and who would stand to make a mighty fine bargain if she could do it. If you talk like this, I shall have to refer you to the great Leonardo's advice to painters. "'What is that?' she asked. "'He recommenced the frequent use of a looking-glass.' She gave me a quick glance, and then blushed so very deeply that I was quite alarmed lest I should have given offence, but her next words reassured me. "'It was nice of you to say that, and most kindly meant. I won't say that I don't care very much how I look, because that would be an ungracious return for your compliment, and it wouldn't be quite true.' There are times when one is quite glad to feel that one looks presentable. The present moment, for instance. I acknowledged the compliment with a bow. Thank you, I said. That was more than I deserved. I only wish that your fortune was equal to your looks. But I am afraid it isn't. I have an uncomfortable feeling that you are not very happy. I'm afraid I'm not, she replied. Life is rather a lottery, you know and the worst of it is that you can only take a single ticket. So, when you find that you've drawn the wrong number, and you realize that there is no second chance, well, it isn't very inspiriting, is it?' I had to admit that it was not, and, after a short pause, she continued, "'Women are poor dependent creatures, Dr. Jardine. Dependent, I mean, for their happiness, on the people who surround them.' "'That is true of us all.' "'Not quite. "'A man, like yourself, for instance, "'has his work and his ambitions "'that make him independent of others. "'But for a woman, "'whatever pretenses she may make "'as to larger interests in life, "'a husband, a home, "'and one or two nice children, "'form the real goal of her ambition.' "'But you are not a lone spinster, "'Mrs. Samway,' I reminded her no i'm not but i have no children no proper home and not a real friend in the world unless i may think of you as one i hope you always will i exclaimed impulsively for there was to me something very pathetic in the evident loneliness of this woman she must i felt Be friendless, indeed, if she must needs appeal for friendship to a comparative stranger like myself. "'I am glad to hear you say that,' she replied, "'for I am making you bear a friend's burden. I hope you will forgive me for pouring out my complaints to you in this way.' "'It isn't difficult,' said I, "'to bear other people's troubles with fortitude. But if sympathy is any good,' Believe me, Missus Samway, when I tell you that I am really deeply grieved to think that you are getting so much less out of life than you ought. I only wish that I could do something more than sympathise. "'I believe you do,' she said. "'I felt, at Folkestone, how kind you were, as a good man is to a woman in her moments of weakness. That is why, I suppose, I was impelled to talk to you like this.' "'And that is why,' she added, after a little pause, "'I felt a pang of envy when I saw you pass with your pretty companion. "'I started somewhat at this. "'Where the deuce could she have seen us near enough to tell whether my companion was pretty or not? "'I turned the matter over rapidly in my mind, and meanwhile I said, "'I don't quite see why you envied me, Mrs. Samway.' "'I didn't say that I envied you.' She replied, with a faint smile and the suspicion of a blush. Or her either, I retorted. We are only the merest acquaintances. My conscience smote me somewhat as I made this outrageous statement, but Mrs. Samway took me up instantly. Then you've only known her quite a short time. The rapidity with which she had jumped to this conclusion fairly took my breath away, and I'd answered her question before I was aware of it. But, I added, I don't quite see how you arrived at your conclusion. I thought, she replied, that you seem to like one another very well. So we do, I think. But can't acquaintances like one another? Oh, certainly. But if they are a young man and a maiden, they are not likely to remain mere acquaintances very long. That was how I argued. I see. Very acute of you. By the way, where did you see us i didn't see you of course you didn't yet you passed quite close to me on the spaniards road immersed in conversation and little suspecting that the green eyes of envy were fixed on you oh now mrs samway i can't have that they're not green you know although what their exact colour is i shouldn't like to say offhand what not after that careful inspection that didn't include the eyes Perhaps you wouldn't mind if I made another, just to satisfy my curiosity, and settle the question for good. Oh, do, by all means, if it is such a weighty question. We both halted, and I stared into the clear depths of her singular, pale, hazel eyes, with an impertinent affectation of profound scrutiny, while she looked up smilingly into mine. Suddenly, to my utter confusion, her eyes filled, and she turned away her head oh please forgive me she exclaimed i beg your pardon i do beg your pardon most earnestly for being such a wretched bundle of emotions you would forgive me if you knew what i can't tell you there is no need dear mrs samway i said very gently laying my hand on her arm are we not friends and may i not give you my warmest sympathy without asking too curiously what brings the tears to your eyes I was in truth deeply moved, as a young man is apt to be by a pretty woman's tears. But more than this, something whispered to me that my playful impertinence had suddenly brought home to her the void that was in her life, the lack of intimate affection at which she had seemed to hint. And, instantly, all that was masculine in me had risen up with the immemorial instinct of the male in defence of the female. For, whatever her faults may have been, Mrs. Samway was feminine to the fingertips. She pressed my hand for a moment, and impatiently brushed the tears from her eyes. "'I do hope, Dr. Jardine,' she said, looking up at me with a smile, "'that your wife will be a good woman. "'You'll be a dreadful victim if she isn't, "'with your quick sympathy "'and your endless patience with feminine silliness. "'And now I won't plague you any more with my tantrums, I hope I'm not bringing you a great deal out of your way. You do live in this direction, don't you? Yes, and I've been assuming that my direction was yours too. Is that right? Are you going back to Hampstead Road? Not at once. I'm going to make a call at Highgate first. Then you'll want to go up Highgate Rise or Swain's Lane, and I will walk up with you, if you'll let me. I think my nearest way will be up the little path that leads out of swains lane you know it i expect yes it is locally known as love lane it leads to the crest of the hill that is right you shall see me to the top of it and then i'll take myself off and leave you in peace we had by this time crossed parliament hill fields and passed the end of the Highgate ponds A few paces more brought us out at the top of the grove, and a few more to the entrance of the rather steep and very narrow lane. For some time Mrs. Samway walked by my side in silence, and, by the reflective way in which she looked at the ground before her, seemed to be wrapped in meditation, which I did not disturb. As we entered the lane, however, she looked up at me thoughtfully and said, "'I wonder what you think of me, Dr. Jardine?' It was a fine opening for a compliment— "'but somehow compliments seemed out of place after what had passed between us. "'I accordingly evaded the question with another. "'What do you suppose I think of you?' "'I don't know. "'I hardly know what I think of myself. "'You would be quite justified in thinking me rather forward "'to waylay you in this deliberate fashion.' "'Well, I don't. "'Your curiosity about that Folkestone affair seems most natural and reasonable.' "'I'm glad you don't think me forward,' she said. "'But, as to my curiosity, I am beginning to doubt whether it was that alone that determined me, of a sudden, to come here and talk to you. I half suspect that I was feeling a little more solitary than usual, and that some instinct told me that you would be kind to me, and say nice things, and pet me just a little, as you have done.' I was deeply touched by her pathetic little confession— so deeply that I could find nothing to say in return. "'You don't think any the worse of me,' she continued, "'for coming to you, and begging a little sympathy and friendship.' As she spoke, she looked up very wistfully and earnestly in my face, and rested her hand for a moment on my arm. I took it in mine, and drew her arm under my own, as I replied, "'Of course I don't. Only I think it a wonder and a shame that my poor friendship and sympathy,' should be worth the consideration of a woman like you. She pressed my arm slightly, and, after a little interval, said in a low voice with just a suspicion of a tremor in it, You've been very kind to me, Dr. Jardine, more kind than you know. I'm very, very grateful to you for taking what was really an intrusion so nicely. It was not in the least an intrusion, I protested, And as to gratitude, a good many men would be very delighted to earn it on the same terms. You don't seem to set much value on your own exceedingly agreeable society. She smiled very prettily at this, and again we walked on for a while up the slope without speaking. Once she turned her head as if listening for some sound from behind us. But our feet were making so much noise on the loose gravel and the sound reverberated so much in the narrow space between the wooden fences that I, at least, heard nothing. Presently we turned a slight bend, and came in sight of the opening at the top of the hill, guarded by a couple of posts. Within a few yards of the latter, she halted, and, withdrawing her hand from my arm, turned round and faced me. "'We must say good-bye here,' said she. "'I wonder if I shall ever see you again.' For a moment I felt a strong impulse to propose some future meeting at a definite date, but fortunately some glimmering of discretion, and perhaps some thought of Sylvia, restrained me. "'Why shouldn't you?' I asked. "'I don't know, but mine is rather a vagabond existence, and I suppose you will be travelling about. I hope we shall meet again soon. But if we do not—' I shall always think of you as my friend. And you will have a kind thought for me sometimes, won't you? I shall indeed. I shall think of you very often, and hope that your life is brighter than it seems to be now. Thank you, she said earnestly. And now, good bye. She held out her hand, and as I grasped it, she looked in my face with the wistful, yearning expression that I had noticed before and which so touched me to the heart that, yielding to a sudden impulse, I drew her to me and kissed her. Dim as was the light of the fading winter's day, I could see that she had in an instant turned scarlet. But she was not angry, for, as she drew away from me, shyly and almost reluctantly, she gave me one of her prettiest smiles, and whispered good-bye again. Then she ran out between the posts, and turning once again... And still as red as a peony waved me a last farewell i stood in the narrow entrance looking out after her with a strange mixture of emotions pity wonder and admiration and a little doubt as to my own part in the late transaction for i had never before kissed a married woman and cooling judgment did not altogether approve the new departure for if mr samway was not all that he might be Still, he was Mr. Samway, and I wasn't. Nevertheless, I stood and watched my late companion with very warm interest until she faded into the dusk, and even then I continued to stand by the posts, gazing out into the waning twilight, and cogitating on our rather strange interview. Suddenly, my ear caught a sound from behind me, down the lane, a sound which, while it set my suspicion on the alert, brought a broad grin to my face. It was what I suppose I must call a stealthy footstep, but the stealthiness might have stood for the very type and essence of futility, for, as I have said, the ground sloped pretty steeply and was covered with loose pebbles, whereby every movement of the foot was rendered as audible as a thunderclap. However, absurd as the situation seemed, if the unseen person was really trying to approach by stealth, it was necessary to be on my guard. Moreover, if this should chance to be the person with the nystagmus, The present seemed to be an excellent opportunity for coming to some sort of understanding with him. Accordingly, I wheeled about and began to walk back down the lane. Instantly, the steps, no longer stealthy, began to retire. I quickened my pace. The unknown and invisible eavesdropper quickened his. Then I broke into a run, and so did he, notwithstanding which, I think I should have had him, but for an untoward accident. The ground was not only sloping, but under the loose gravel was as hard as stone. Consequently, the foothold was not of the best, as I presently discovered, for, as I raced down one of the steepest slopes, the pebbles suddenly rolled away under my foot, and I lost my balance. But I did not fall instantly. Half recovering, I flew forward, clawing the air, stamping, staggering, kicking up the gravel, and making the most infernal hubbub and clatter before I finally subsided into a sitting posture on the pebbles. When i rose the footsteps were no longer audible though the lower end of the lane was still some distance away i resumed my progress at a more sedate pace and kept a sharp lookout for a possible ambush though the lane was too narrow even in the darkness that now pervaded it to furnish much cover to an enemy some distance down i came to an opening in the fence where one or two boards had become loose and was half disposed to squeeze through and explore but i did not for on a reflection it occurred to me that if the man was not there it would be useless for me to go while if he should be hiding behind the fence it would be simply insane of me to put my head through the hole when i emerged into the road at the bottom i looked about vaguely but of course there was no sign of the fugitive nor indeed could i have identified him if i had met him i loitered about undecidedly for a minute or two and then, realizing the futility of keeping a watch on the entrance of the lane for a man whom I could not recognize, and becoming conscious of a ravenous desire for food, I made my way down the grove in the direction of my lodgings. End of chapter 14